I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. My happy place will always be talking to other musicians about music. Even with musicians I'm meeting for the first time, we start talking about music and by the end of our conversation, we're firm friends. Which leads me on nicely to tell you about today's guest, songwriter, producer, musical director and composer, Sarah de Courcy. This this foundation that I built up of knowledge of classical of um, even like chords understand the the real nitty gritty of understanding what music does and where it goes if you go here and here it equals this and it brings you this and it brings you this understanding chord changes and where they can take you all these kind of things I feel like if I'm in a situation where I want to go somewhere I can reach for it because I know what it is. I met Sarah through another musician, Mr. Hudson, the Mr. Hudson who's collabed with Jay-Z and Kanye West on Supernova and Forever Young. We started chatting about music as musicians do, kept in touch via Instagram. Sarah moved to LA, which you will hear more about in our conversation. And now we're here in today's interview. Sarah was a child prodigy. She started playing the piano at three picked up the violin and was composing violin sonatas at the age of eight. We don't have the audio, but I've put a picture of the sonata manuscript in my Instagram post so you can see how prodigious she was. At eight, I was playing chopsticks. She was performing solo piano concertos at the Royal College of Music in Manchester, leading youth orchestras as a violinist. She won Young Composer of the Year at nine and Young Musician of the Year at 11. She studied classical piano and film composition at the Royal Academy of Music in London, and it was there that she got into contemporary music. That particular moment when I heard that record changed the way I thought about how I could output my creativity and what almost what was allowed, you know, when you're, when you're taught classical music, you know, there are rules and boundaries are very, I hate to say snobby, but it's very traditional, you know, education. Mm. So when you hear like these big scores over the top of like dance pop with crazy Icelandic vocals over the top, um, my head exploded. Sarah wears many hats. She's an engineer and built her own music studio from scratch. We talk about her foundation in classical music and how she draws upon it when writing mainstream pop music, the differences between live arena production versus studio album production, and our mutual love of Justin Bieber. 
We talk about the importance of understanding the administrative and legal side of the music industry and knowing your worth, not just as a musician, but as a female musician. I feel I was very apologetic when I was when I was first starting out. I didn't want to rock the boat. I felt like I was lucky to be there. There was all men. I was lucky to be sitting at this table. But no, I mean, yeah, it was a stupid thing to feel that way. But you do feel the pressure because you do feel like you're in somebody else's club, you know. We had to record the LA interview outside because Sarah's neighbours were cutting the hedge and the builders were in her house. So you'll hear birdsong and winds and street ambiance, but think of it as the soundtrack, if you will, to our conversation. Sarah, thank you so much for doing this all the way from sunny LA. I'm really jealous that you're in the sunshine with your sunglasses on right now. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it's super exciting to see you as well. It's been such a long time. <laughs> I know. Um, but LA is beautiful. Um, even with everything that's going on in the world right now, it's still beautiful and inspiring. So yeah, I'm feeling very lucky. And yeah, it's awesome to chat with you. Yeah, we have, we have uh, Mr. Hudson, uh, Ben Hudson, to thank for our introduction because I met him through you. You did in, uh, I think it was in Old Street in uh, yeah. some, some swanky hotel, some industry, something or other, the usual. Um, yeah, we met, talked, uh, inspired each other, I think, musically, as we, yeah. as we all do. And um, yeah, we've been in touch ever since. But uh, yeah, thank you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know that you're a songwriter, producer, musical director, composer, but why don't you tell us how you got started? Like, tell us your journey into what you do. Yeah, I started playing the piano at the age of three and uh, I was playing classical music and um, picked up the violin at the age of six and then started playing um, flute, really experimenting with different instruments. And um, then I uh, got a position at a place called Cheatham School of Music, which is in Manchester in the UK. And it's like a specialist kind of music school. And I, I was there till the age of 18 studying classical music. And I started composing probably around the age of eight just writing piano music, classical, writing for quartets. Um, and I was playing in orchestras, performing piano concertos with orchestras at a young age. Um, I, think I did a performance at the Royal Northern College of Music um, at the age of 11, which was crazy. I was so scared. Um, they were like, my feet could just touch the pedals on the piano. And I was like, oh. ah. um, so this was kind of a, a real classical like, composition journey when I was younger. And then I think um, around 13 or 14, I discovered this whole um, studio electronic world where I was like, what? What is all this crazy cool stuff? And um, I think that's when um, it sort of creatively, I suppose, I started to lean into both both um, areas of music and sort of discover jazz and um, Cuban and just all the, basically all the world's genres of music. And that just sort of expanded into me really gravitating towards film because um, obviously in film, you, you know, you have a wide palette to work towards uh, picture and story and everything. So then I applied for the Royal Academy of Music in London to study classical piano uh, with a professor there and also commercial music. Moving on from that, I studied there. And when I left the Royal Academy, I started playing in bands and doing gigs in London as a keyboard player and a piano player and you know, playing in hotels and all this kind of stuff. 
um, got to have a couple of my own bands with my friends, you know, put some tracks out, do a little touring of the UK in like tiny little vans, you know, the usual with like Hammond organs and stuff. Mm. Um, And then after that, I started to really get into making songs, working with vocalists. Um, I started to put together a studio in Chiswick. And um, yeah, I think from that point, then I'd really kind of found the things that I really wanted to do, which was producing, working with vocalist songs and also working on a film score and uh, really trying to bring that hybrid together um, mm. of all the kind of music that I, that I loved and been inspired by when I was younger. Yeah. You, you, you failed to say that basically you were a child prodigy because <laughs> um, just the fact you, you said you were writing, um, composing quartet like what, eight or whatever. So I'm always fascinated by prodigies and how, because obviously when you're a kid, you're not like, oh, I'm a prodigy. You're just making music, right? Well, yeah, you're just, you're just like, you have ideas and you're basically just trying to get them out of your head in your spare time when you're not learning English and math. And um, yeah, I, I actually discovered these competitions that go on in the UK. It's Royal uh, it's uh, oh, what's it called? Um, Young Composer of the Year and Young Musician of the Year. Mm-hmm. They go on in the UK, and um, I actually won the Young Composer of the Year when I was nine. Which sort of, it's an age group, you know. I'm not like <laughs> it's. I think it's up to eleven. <laughs> and uh, I did uh, Young Musician as well on the piano. So yeah, um, I was uh, just kind of suppose when you're in it you don't realize what you're doing. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, that sounds kind of an achievement. Um, but yeah, I think I was always in my spare time just wanting to make, I mean, I did a, I did a, a solo violin sonata, just pure solo. And it was inspired by Bach, actually, because he does a lot of the solo cello and violin. And so I got my friend to perform it and we like recorded it because he was like, oh, mate, work way better than me. And um, that went in for a composer competition. So yeah, I think it's just that kind of creative proactiveness that we, I think all of us have, including yourself, of just the need to just keep creating. And that just started like really early for me, I think. Do you still have these recordings? I do, yeah. I actually have one on, it's kind of like going a little sidestep, but I I was forced to learn old school when I learned uh, studio uh, engineering. So I had to learn on two inch tape. They wouldn't let me touch a Mac for like a year. So I had to run everything through a desk and onto tape. And so my recordings I actually have on two inch two inch tape yeah it's crazy but um yeah I I also have them on uh, like digitally copied but um but yeah that's how I recorded all the um the classical stuff that I did originally but yeah I do have recordings of them yeah have you listened back to them and thought that's amazing for a nine-year-old or you like oh my god like how do you feel when you listen back to them I listen to them like that's amazing I don't think I could do that now no (laughs) No, it's it's uh, it is amazing. I do, I do think where did that even come from? <laughs> Amidst all the riding my bike and running around and causing causing havoc. Um, but yeah, I uh, I do. I you know it's weird. I don't listen to it as much as I have the handwritten scores. I still have all the handwritten manuscripts, um, and I actually brought them over to LA with me as well. And sometimes I do, I read them. Yeah, I'm like this is amazing scoring. Yeah, <laughs> well, so yeah, yeah. It is. It is just weird actually. My move, my move over here, forced because I was going through everything, and it'd been in a pile in my studio in London for years. And my move kind of forced me to open them up and actually read the scores, and you know, and I was like, wow, well, that was me. <laughs> 
That's amazing. And I tell me how all of this translates to sort of your your life now, because I come from a classical music background and I started writing songs through listening to classical music because I had my piano teacher used to make me write the chords under every single bar. So I understood what was happening. So she, I always say she taught me how to listen without me even realizing. And she would say to me, you need to listen as you play. And I was thinking, uh, I can hear. I don't know what you mean, but I understand now what she meant because you can play and not listen. It's a different kind of thing so tell me how all your sort of this really solid foundational learning of this classical this classical rigor has translated into what you do now and in in the composition but also all the the pop stuff you do and all this sort of really big music that you do how is that translated into your writing I feel like and and again it's all it's all personal I know a lot of people who aren't trained um people who are trained but would it even be training I don't even know what to call it people who have learned classical or not but I do feel like what it has given me which is amazing is if I'm in a room say with a pop artist or if I'm in a room with with a quartet and I need to change the the score I'm not feeling it I feel like this this foundation that I built up of knowledge of classical of um, even like chords understand the the real nitty gritty of understanding what music does and where it goes if you go here and here it equals this and it brings you this and it brings you this understanding chord changes and where they can take you understanding baseline understanding um, arrangement you know all these kind of things I feel like if I'm in a situation where I want to go somewhere, I can reach for it because I know what it is, you know? So, so it's like, oh, I feel like it's not going here. It needs to go here and I can go, yeah, and I know where that is. I know what that is and I know how to achieve it because it's, it, it's there. It's like knowledge that I have. Oh, I want it. I don't want it to go from, you know, the sus into like, I want it to go into diminish and then not go to the relative minor. I want to cross it over and go through like, you know, the fifth cycle and back to a different root note. I want to, you know, and I, and I know how to do that immediately. I can just grab it and roll with it and keep the creative flow going. It doesn't stop me in any way. And I'm really grateful for that. And I think if I'm even working in a pop environment and we're, we're almost like, oh, you know, this is the wrong key or could we make the, you know, cra crazy things like, the song is in a key, but the chorus is too high for them to sing. Could we change the key of the chorus? Well no, no. <laughs> but what we could do is use the bridge to to arm us through some kind of chord progression where it feels like we've not changed at all but we have and it's comfortable you know this mm -hmm. kind of thing has really really helped me um over the years that that foundation of feeling really supported by the knowledge I've got oh I want it to feel a little bit jazzy all right well I know what to add or I want it to feel a little bit Cuban or I want it to feel a bit um South American or a little bit um you know, a little bit of African touch in there. All right, I know what instruments, I know what chords that is really influenced by that that um, that kind of uh, genre of music. So I feel like that's that's what it's brought to me. It's, it's, it's almost like this level of comfort where nothing, like everything is at my fingertips and I can just go get it when I need it. And I'm really that's grateful amazing. for that. That's amazing. And so I want to talk about your process, but I want to take it through all the different things that you do because you do composition and you've mm -hmm. written for film. You've, done, um, you've got 001 Lithium X that comes out this year. 
Murmur yeah. that came uh, that came out in 2019 at the Toronto Film Festival. Bury Me in Armour, you've done TV series Midnight Sun that was for um, on Sky Atlantic. So tell me a little bit about your process when it comes to composing for moving image. So usually I like to, I mean, with a TV show, obviously that's already in place and everything, but with the, with the films, um, I like to get the script, actually. I'm, I don't want to see anything first. I want to understand the characters and the story on paper because it allows me to hear stuff and see the story unfolding in my own head. I'm, I'm a big reader. I read a lot of books and that keeps my imagination going. And so I do... I do like to read the script first. They're always like, let me send you some scenes. I'm like, no, nah, just send me the script. <laughs> nice. And then I will, I will, I mean, for example, with Bury Me in Armour, which I'm about to wrap actually this week, which is really exciting. This, mm. I scored two script. They hadn't filmed anything. Wow. And I scored the entire thing to script. I picked out the areas in the script where I felt like it would probably need support without even seeing. And obviously the cues aren't the right length because it's not too pitchy yet, but I scored the theme and the sound, you know, the sound of it, the palette of sounds that I was going to use, I chose just from script and wrote like right the way to the end titles when the film finishes and the end titles are rolling. I actually decided to compose a waltz just on solo piano. It was more like a nocturne actually. Yeah, I'd say it was a nocturne kind of um, uh, just to, to end the mood of the film, you know. So, so um, as far as working to picture, it's almost like I'd say the story and the characters come for me first that's how I hear the sounds and then when I see the picture some things I might change some things I might move around but that's kind of so far I'm only four films in but so far that's how I've um I've approached it yeah that's so interesting because I was interviewing a music supervisor today and she said exactly the same thing she said right. she needs to see the script first um, mm. And then she selects, she will like create playlists for the characters. Mm. And I thought that was such an interesting way to write because I, I, when I write, everything is visual for me. So if I'm mm. scoring for like a short film, I need the images to sort of understand, I mean, get the sense of the story, but the images actually help me write. So it's really interesting what you said, that you, that's the way, way around you do it. Mm. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely where I'd love to start with, um, with lithium, with uh, 001 Lithium X, I got to see, uh, I got a section of the script and I got to see a cut of, an early cut of the film with nothing, no temp track, no, no, no temp score or anything. It was just, just the film. But, and, I, and I think to, to be honest with you, um, I think seeing the visuals with that at the same time as uh, reading the script before I'd come up with anything did actually help because it's, it's kind of futuristic and you probably wouldn't get that from the script because what's beautiful about it is it's actually a love story. Uh, you know, you wouldn't really get the feel of that. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of VFX, it's based, you know, in the future. And so um, that really helps me come up with uh, um, an interesting theme and an interesting sound. Um, but, you know, essentially the the script is where i'll go back i think i started some themes saw some visuals and then i was like okay you get all the cuts in in place i'm going to now keep on the script and just keep writing cues and uh, themes for all the characters which is definitely what i did for lithium i i uh i came up with certain themes for when the characters come into into play um so yeah it's uh it's ma mainly how i work yeah 
That's really interesting. And then also you produce and you songwrite. You've got two gold albums, one double platinum album, 12 top 10 record releases. So that's crazy. When did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. So tell me about that, because that's a very different thing. If you know you're writing for artists, it's a different process. So tell me a little bit about that side of things. (laughs) It is. It is actually a different process. It kind of I was I was writing songs um, quite a lot anyway before I started working with artists. And I think when I got the job as musical director for Kylie Minogue's tour, mm-hmm. it's merging pop with visual, right? It's a show. Mm-hmm. It's a performance. We've got dancers. We've got this... Uh, this one story to tell in an hour and a half. We've got uh, the the main character is Kylie. The the show has a theme. Uh, there's screens. There's lights. You know, and I'm like, oh, I can relate to this. And maybe that's why that was went so well for me. Like working with her, she loved the the sort of angles that I was bringing in, and you know, the little segue sections and things like that. And I think that from that that catapulted me working with other pop artists and um, very grateful for for that door like flung open and mm. I think like record labels heard kind of the versions of her songs that I did and the the original music that I wrote for the tour and they liked the angles that I had and the access to different ways of producing and writing um, and I suppose like it was kind of like a little um little arm from where I was but kind of similar to my sensitivity towards film and then bringing in I I basically see the pop artist as the character of their own film of their own story right so I'm working with uh, Christoph Willem who's a really successful French artist and I see he's he's the character of his own story and his his creativity and his songs and his journey and everything and so when I went into making that first album with him the songs that we did together and the production, everything was really like understanding him. I spent a week with him. He came to London. We spent like six weeks solid working on the record, really got to know each other. So writing for him is like writing for him and producing for him and making sure that the, the story was solid and the visuals were coming with it. You know, as we're in the studio, we're imagining visuals with all these songs. So, um, you know, then I was lucky enough to get invited on the next album with him. And then, you know, we had like number ones and number twos and the albums did like golden double close crazy. Then it's, yeah, it just kind of rolled on from there. But I think the catapult was actually bringing that visual and pop together in the live shows was like my little in. And, and I think like from doing that, I kind of learned both sides, but didn't let go of either. When I think I'm writing for a pop artist, I don't go, right, this is pop. It's not this. I just, yeah. it's every, it's everything. It's just that in this particular story, the artist is the character, you know? Oh, right. Yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. It does make sense. Yeah. And it's an interesting way of um, seeing it. Cause obviously I tend to write for myself. So it's a whole yeah. different process, but I want to go back to what you said about being musical director and live director for Kylie Minogue, because she, you're sort of coming in on, on an artist that we kind of all know already, but live is so different to audio. You know, you're trying to create an experience and I know you've done little mix. I know you've done stuff with Nicole Scherzinger as well. An example. So tell me a little bit about creating a live show and what that entails in your process when you're doing that. Cause it is different to, you know, just, Mm. you know, pressing play on, you know, a track one of an album. Yeah, so so my first live 
music director was Kylie, so straight in the deep end there. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, but luckily, I was working with a show director called William Baker and a show producer called Steve Anderson, who had been in the industry for a very long time. So had two incredible people to uh, work alongside with, learn off, watch what they do under, you know, so wasn't too scary, but um, it was incredible to watch how they, how they were working the whole show into like the tracks that I was presenting, the ideas that I was putting forward. And basically it's uh, getting, getting an idea from like William Baker would say that the show is uh, going to be based around these kind of themes and then you'd sit down and get her entire catalog together and put together a set list of what was going to be in the show. And then amongst those set lists, we see, you know, there's a geisha section, there's a futuristic section in the show that we need five tracks for this section, five tracks, you know, it's all down to style and video and like a theatre, you know, uh, especially with Kylie's shows, they are very theatrical, very high production. Um, so then it's finding the songs in each section. You know, we did like a kind of retro section. So it was all like step back in time and I should be so lucky and all, all our older tracks and oh, we were very colorful 80s colors on the stage. Mm. And all right, so let's ramp these up. Let's get the original audio from way back when this was made. And then let's like do one that's like pure original and then we can boost it and make it today's version of this. And, you know, kind of bringing those flavors through and make it a little bit more than just listening to the record, like step it up, do a breakdown, do a segue between, you know, uh, one song into another from the same album back then it's just like running in three four songs and we do little um little fill-ins of cool little 80s dance breaks so the dancers can show off all this kind of stuff um so with that having that big theatrical kind of story laid out by william really helped bringing the visuals together and deciding which areas um in the show should have which you know which songs and what we should end on and start with and open with you know and then moving on from that show we did like america and hollywood but i mean it was incredible like two tours with her it was incredible and there was a live album made and it was amazing and then moving on from that was christoph willem where i was um, i was working with him and kind of coming up with a show concept as well so what i'd learned from before uh, i was bringing in like doing the concept and working with the staging and the storyline so i kind of stepped up my job a little bit and dabbling into the director side and doing versions, mm -hmm. remixes of his first album and, you know, mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. And then this, and then obviously it moves on to little mix was high production again. Um, a lot of their stuff is, um, it's high production anyway. So there wasn't a massive amount of changes. It was more intros onto the stage and, mm -hmm. you know, chat points, things like that. So, um, it's kind of giving this, giving the live performance a thread from start to finish, um, where you feel like, um, yeah, there's all these different stories from all these different albums from this artist over the years. We're going to put that all into one big package, and you're going to experience it in all these mm. different levels of entertainment, from breaking it down to piano and vocal, or guitar and vocal, to remixes of his classic songs, or you know, turning "I Should Be So Lucky" into piano and vocal jazz ballad at the end of the set in Hollywood Bowl, for instance, that we did with Kylie, which was amazing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing in a way because you look at it and say, oh, what's the process? And it's almost like you have so much more scope to play with. It's, it's almost more fun than making an album. There's no restrictions. There's no, 
you know you could really go anywhere with it like better the devil we did like uh, with with kylie but the devil you know we did like this whole carnival breakdown in the middle with like latin uh, influenced sounds and big trombone solo in the middle and oh it was mm. crazy it's like never imagined this to happen on an album but live it's yeah. like turn the turn the turn the volume up turn the dial up basically so that's fun for me that's amazing it's funny though because i know that you're playing down how what a tremendous amount of work that is <laughs> yeah like yeah. i mean what you're saying is it's just so much work and especially like with big artists and arena tours some yeah. things that work in intimate music venues just don't work in a 50,000 or 100,000 seater venue. So to keep no. that kind of energy and write music that fits that. And I know obviously she has costumes and you have all of that, but still yeah. just musically, uh, you know, I know when I do stuff with my band and it's nothing like it's we're like a little seven piece and jazz clubs and it's so much work. So I can't <laughs> even imagine like the work that it entails to do you know this massive 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 you know machine you know so oh yeah it, it's, it's yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of a machine you have to keep running every day yeah and uh, you've got you know all the techs that have to um you know shout out to all the crew and techs i mean other people you don't see that are working long long hours to build this set that we keep changing <laughs> um, and <laughs> creating video content, the video content guys, the lighting guys who are there till midnight, you know, reprogramming the lights because I've changed this whole section where she's going to be on the other side of the stage and the beat is going to be here. So they have to reprogram, you know, there is a lot and it's always forever changing. And you know what? I'm going to say seven or eight gigs after opening night, we're still changing. We're still tweaking. Well, I'm watching the show. If I'm not on the stage with Kylie, I was on the stage, but um, if I'm just like with Little Mix, I was watching the show. But if 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 I'm like you know listening back or watching back to the show, I'm like, oh, this bit's going on too long, or this isn't long enough. The audience weren't really enjoying that. And you don't really know until you get out there. It's like, okay, yeah. well, we could do another couple of minutes of this. They're loving it, or let's not put that at the end. It's too slow, or you know, so ever moving creative process, and then eventually it settles. But um, I have to demo up the entire show to present to the artist before we even go into recording so i have to basically demo the entire show wow. in my studio and play what the band would play and have everything running as it would and then when they go yes then delete all that because it's not needed and then rehearse it with the real musicians and the dancer yeah it's 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 actually uh it's a long process but it's it's a needed process i mean mm -hmm. you know talking millions of dollars being spent by live nation or kylie i mean kylie pay for her her own show which is incredible and wow. i just think that yeah i think that um it, it is a lot but you know when you've got amazing musicians like that can just come in and rehearse you know 30 songs and eight hours a day then changing and changing again and then you've got crew trying to build everything around while we're rehearsing and it's 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 definitely like 50 60 people <laughs> make it all happen for sure Wondering, anyone here ready for the disco? I'm breaking it down. 
me. I mean, I know I can hear you. You are a lover of music like I am. Like you love <laughs> making music, listening to music, talking about music. It's like it feeds you. But who or what inspires and informs your work? Oh, inspires and oh, I think everyone. But uh, I'm going to be specific because everyone says that. You know what? It's, it's kind of going back. There was actually a real moment um, when I was younger, younger, younger. And I discovered uh, Bjork and David Arnold work together on that album. And I was like, what is this? It's amazing. <laughs> um, Bjork, obsessed with everything she does. She's an, an amazing musician, creator, visionary, pioneer. Just, woof. She's unbelievable and then David Arnold who I was lucky to meet like a couple of years ago in London we had like dinner and he's awesome as well but those two when they did that track of that album I was like I don't understand what's going on here but it's incredible like this is classical and it's pop and it's all these things like hybrid together there's a vocalist who's got an original vocal sound it's not just the usual vocal you know you're coming out yeah. of the 80s where everyone's singing the same you're coming out of the 90s where everyone's singing the same pop and then Bjork comes out and you're like who is this um, yeah. and I think that, that it's that particular moment when I heard that record changed the way I thought about how I could output my creativity and what almost what was allowed you know when you're when you're taught classical music you know there are rules and boundaries it's very I hate to say snobby but it's very traditional you know education mm. so when you hear like these big scores over the top of like dance pop with crazy Icelandic vocals over the top um, my head exploded I was like I want to do that that's amazing <laughs> and then you know obviously I'm listening to like Vangelis you know Blade Runner and Charles Fire and all these composers using synths not score and it's all this synthetic modular based sounds that are being manipulated and used in in a very melodic way and I think I'm going to say like those two things are what set my brain on fire. And I just thought I can do anything like this is amazing. <laughs> so if I had to kind of pick a couple of inspirational moments, there's probably heaps more, but those two always stick out. When someone asks me the question, I'm like, it's just hearing those two things definitely shaped the way I, I, I think about approaching something creatively. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, and um, it's funny because I'm, I'm thinking about, as you're talking, I'm thinking about your music because obviously I listen to it to prepare for this. <coughs> Film obviously is different to TV, is, off, is different to um, the other mediums that you work in. But I mm. still feel like knowing your influences, I can now understand what you mean. There is still yeah. your handprint on everything that you make, even if like you know we know that film you're having to serve the image but i can mm. still hear your your handprint on it which is really amazing i guess like someone who does that where you're like oh this must be hans zimmer like you can always know yeah. when it's hans zimmer yeah. there's like a yeah. sound he has mm. um not that you sound like hans zimmer that's not what i mean but you you sound like yourself and now that i've heard what your influences are i'm like oh that's really interesting yeah. It's kind of like, um, you know, Cliff Martinez, for instance, you know, you know that that's him or even, you know, you can go to like David Arnold or Craig Armstrong or any, any of those um, composers who have like d hybrid in their career. They're not just pure score, you know, and you can, you can definitely hear, hear that it's them, you know, Daniel yeah. Pemberton, for instance, you can hear like his stamp on, on everything that he does. Um, 
yeah, I, I think it's uh, he can go Trevor Horn, you know, let's talk about that. I mean, he's definitely a hybrid producer, writer, you know, so, so yeah, it's really amazing. building your own studio I want to talk about <laughs> women in tech spaces because that's oh, yeah. a really tech thing I was listening to Linda Perry um talking about her like she basically just learned how to do stuff kind of by herself yeah but um like if I see equipment I'm like oh I don't I don't want to look at it I'm like oh, let someone else do it I'm like really let someone else. I know what I want things to sound like but if you're explaining stuff to me I'm like Ugh, I'm really not listening but tell me yeah. about you're literally making your studio and building up from scratch. Tell me about how you do that and why you're just so into that as well. It, it is a bit weird that I'm into it. I'm very into it. Um, I built my first studio in London, actually. It was this empty room in a block of studios that just, there's a room sorted out kind of thing. It was cheap, which was handy for, for me at the time. I was like, I could turn this into a studio. And I think like there's a couple of friends I knew in the industry and there's a, there's a, a guy called Yanto Browning who's Australian and he worked at, um, at a, a music equipment store. So he'd like bring mics over for me to test and take them back to the shop the next day and like equipment for me to try out and understand and get my hands on stuff. And obviously because I learned old school when my, when my music teacher taught me the uh, music tech side, I understand the the thread of sound like analog not just digital so i think that that to be honest i think that really helped me understand what limiter compressor eqs uh you know cutoff resonance all these things i understand what it brings to something you know my first reverb was a zoom 1201 which is an actual outboard gear that i put vocals through and have to set the reverb and then if i wanted that reverb again i'd have to like find it again you know it's like not it's like that's it print it and you're done you know so i i think i because i learned like that it really helped me pick up engineering quickly right. and like mics and yeah and like trying out mics why do i like this blue mic over this neumann or this road or this akg why why is this one better or is it condenser or cardioid whatever ribbon mics for this all these kind of things which and I think just it just really interests me that that what I could get out of an instrument using different equipment, you know, like different microphones when I'm recording violin, for instance, the other week, and it's just like this whole different sound. I'm doing something that's quite raw. I want to do it on the road. I don't want it to sound too expensive. I want it to sound like this. And then if I'm doing score stuff, I'd get it on the Neumann, get it on a nice room mic, get it on a like get it on a good good um, a good sound base to kind of get it to sound how I want it to sound it's almost they're almost instruments in themselves mm-hmm. you know it's it's it is it is the uh the the way that the instrument is being presented to you is going through those things so 
it's almost like that's what makes it really interesting for me. So when I was building my studio in London, I spent a long time kind of sussing out, obviously, the room and acoustic paneling and all that, but also just the gear that I wanted to use and how I wanted to use it and how I wanted my audio thread set up. Um, so, yeah, it kind of started there. And then, obviously, I moved over to L.A. and get to rebuild again. And a few things have changed and I've been doing it longer. I'm getting different types of equipment, trying out different things. So it's always been a bit of a passion of mine to understand kind of every parts, all the, all, all the parts of the car, basically. How does this run? It's not just this bit, it's all of it, you know, all doesn't work without each other kind of thing. So yeah, it's always been a big interest of mine. Wow, wow, gosh, gosh. Well, you have more patience than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, but it does excite me. <laughs> it's a little, little bit weird. <laughs> so how did you tell me about your move to LA? Why did you decide to, I mean, apart from the weather, obviously, but why It's LA? all the weather. It, it was all about the weather. It's got nothing to do with LA. It's just, I wanted it to be sunny. <laughs> um, the sun helps. Now, I, uh, I felt like I'd spent a long time in London, eight, like 10 years or something, building everything up. And I felt like I'd, I'd reached a point where there's certain things I wanted to do that I wasn't amongst creatively, like people, like companies i was doing a few trips back and forth and getting some great responses and then i think in my head i was like i think a nice change of location a whole new set of like clients to get to know if i really want to break into film i mean i was pitching for a few films in in london and i was i was doing well kind of getting cue placements and stuff but i really wasn't grabbing a hold and the more i was coming over here the more they were like, well, if you're here, it's kind of, you're going to meet a lot more people. So I think it was just like, I needed to jump into a deeper pond and get a bit scared again. I was, I was, I was nice, nice and comfortable in London and it was great, but um, I felt like I needed to like jumpstart the next stage of um, film for me, especially. Um, I was obviously doing well in pop and shows, live shows, production, all that was great. Um, so I think that's one of the main reasons why I moved was to really jumpstart that part of my career, like really throw myself into it. And within sort of seven months of me hustling and banging down doors, I got my first film over here, like full, full score. So yeah, that was, that was a main reason for moving. And then obviously the sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, how are you, how are you finding? I mean, you, I mean, you're clearly not going to come back here, but how, how are you finding? <laughs> How were you finding it in terms of work and, and you know, that you went out for the reasons that you went out for? And I know LA can, is such a hustling place because everyone is going to make it, you know? How have yeah, you found yeah. it? You've been there, what, two years now? Yeah, two years. Um, it's, you know, when I first got out here, it was, uh, it was really tough. I had to do a lot of meetings with people who probably couldn't help me but might know someone. You have mm. to be willing to put the time and the work in doing a lot of emailing and just getting to know. I mean, my first film came from me meeting a producer who I knew couldn't give me anything because he said, you know, we only work with composers who have a, you know, a credits on film. That's our mm. policy. I was like, okay, well, let's meet anyway, have lunch. It'd be great to know you. And he's like, oh, okay, great, cool. That would be nice. Luckily, mm. he's like a super nice guy. Um, and uh, it was Identity Film, actually. His name's Anthony, and he, he runs Identity Film. So we met at Soho House, and we had a lunch. And it was like, you know, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, give you any films, but stay in touch. I'm really looking forward to following your career. And to be honest, I did a lot of those meetings, a lot. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't say they were dead ends at all, but they feel at the time you're like, oh, you know, 
and um, I was just basically making music, scoring to picture for advertising for brands and stuff to keep the rent coming in, which is also fun, actually. I really enjoy it. And, um, and then one day, Anthony called me and said, look, I had a meeting with a director the other day who's looking for a composer. It's not under our production company, this film. It's somebody, but I, I recommended you. You should go meet him for lunch. And that's how I got my first film like full, full feature film. So, um, so it can just come from anywhere. So basically I knew that when I came out here, so I just exhausted myself meeting like anyone and everyone and just sending out my reel and just making as much as I making, making as much of a dent socially as I could to get people mm. know that I'm here meeting composers, even, you know, just going and meeting other composers, you need an assistant, mm. all this kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was tough. And there's obviously a lot of people doing that, but, um, it, you don't really take notice of that. You know, people say, Oh, everyone's doing it. It's too hard. It's like, don't worry about what everyone else is doing. You just do it and you'll, you'll mm-hmm. pop out. If you've got your own thing, just stick to it. You know, someone from BMI said to me before I left, um, uh, in London, she said, um, just, just stick to what you do. Don't get distracted by everyone else and you'll do fine. And I kind of, kind of really, it rings in my head every now and again. I'm glad she said that. <laughs> What lessons have you learned that we can learn from? Oh, I'm going to say what I just said, which is <laughs> don't listen to what everyone else is making, doing, saying, meeting. Just do you and the best that you think you can do and the most that you think you can do and just stay on course. Don't worry about sounding like anyone else because you think they're getting work or meeting all these people. Just, yeah, just stick on, on what you're doing and, and you, you'll be fine <laughs> for sure. Um, I would say like mistakes, there are two big, big mistakes. I wouldn't say the mistakes of learning curves, aren't they? Right. Mm. <laughs> um, I would say two big learning curves for me were understanding your industry, understand it. Oh my gosh. Understand what royalties are, understand what owning a master and owning a publishing right and owning and license fees and, and understand all of this. Because when I first started out, I didn't, and there was a lot of mistakes that were made, like registering stuff, you know, understand what PPL is and PRS and MCPS and ASCAP, fully understand where your royalties are going and what the ownership is. Um, that, that's a big thing for me. And don't just sign up to publishing, publishing deals and, you know, sync deals and stuff. Just, you know, just understand it before you do anything, because a lot of grief in the past in my career was from just not fully understanding what that was mm. yeah and um and and then i'd say like the other thing is don't don't undervalue yourself ever mm. like uh, i did that a lot it's a regret mainly but um you know we all have a skill set it's very individual and specialist what we do because we're creatives of what's mm. in our own head so it's worth if that's worth something like I get, I got very tired of hearing people say to me, Oh, but this is going to be a good opportunity. You should do it for nothing. And it's like, well, I'll decide that. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's my career. I'll decide if this is a good opportunity for me, not you. And uh, otherwise this is my rate. (laughs) And Mm. I know that sounds like super bossy, but it, but it almost is like, don't under no, no composer out there. Just don't undervalue what you have to offer because it is very personal what you have to offer. No one else can do what you do you know, and really, really value that and make sure you keep 
that value where it where it should be and um it's a skill set that you have that we have all as musicians spent 20 years of our lives uh, of our lives um crafting and learning and practicing for nothing so that we can offer these things to people mm -hmm. and uh, that that has value and i think that that those are mainly the two things that are i would say are things that i wish i'd had sorted earlier <laughs> But that is that's such wise advice. And I find it very interesting what you said. And I wanted to ask you whether you said, you know, is it super bossy? I feel like only women say things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. Do you think, like, I mean, it's so difficult to say, but how have you, you being a woman navigating? Because you're clearly exceptionally talented. So I don't even understand how you could ever have valued yourself. I mean, you can do so many things so, so, so well. How have you navigated being a woman in a space that, to be honest, is really heavily male? It just is. So, oh, it is. It's like 8% women. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. in fact, I think like Kylie had never had a female director or producer or anything like ever yeah. uh, little mix hadn't nicole hadn't had females doing her vocals in the studio before she was like this is so nice you know um oh, that's a whole other question the female thing but yeah i i do um i do feel uh yeah i feel i was very apologetic when mm. i was when i was first starting out i didn't want to rock the boat i felt like i was lucky to be there there was all men i was lucky to be sitting at this table but no i mean yeah it was a stupid thing to feel that way but you do feel the pressure because you do feel like you're in somebody else's club you know and uh i hate to say that but it 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 does sometimes feel that way that um you know you're you're in a room with people who've been there for a while and and you feel like oh okay well I'll, could you just do this extra thing oh okay i'll do it or could you just do it for this one because i mean you're lucky to kind of be here kind of concept and i do feel like um it has taken me some time to become quite headstrong with what I have to offer and I've turned things down which I would never have done in the past oh my gosh never would I have turned down an opportunity but now I'm like that's not so much an opportunity for me but I feel like you're getting something for cheap because it's the other you know and I know it sounds a bit brutal but there is a lot of that that goes on so I think that's that's definitely something that um maybe it stems from being female I don't know but uh yeah we we uh we need to stand a bit stronger with that one, definitely. And I and the more we, yeah, go sorry, for it. I was just saying the more we understand, I think it helps us feel stronger when we're having these conversations. It goes back to my other thing: if you understand your industry, you know, you know what your royalties are worth, you know what your master is worth. So that, then, if you're going in with a client headstrong and going, "No, I want this," mm -hmm. you can explain why because you understand. And I think a lot of people don't push back because they don't understand. So they get scared, so they just kind of agree. And I think arming yourself with that information is is really important. No, totally. I mean, they say knowledge yeah. is power. And I think yep. if, you, if you're coming into a predominantly male space, and there is a lot of, um, I find, you know, the music industry, there's a lot of people just passing. And they sort of, they, they chat a lot of nonsense sometimes. And you have to learn how to navigate it. You know, and that's something, it's... I think it is a language in and of itself, like understanding the music industry yeah. is understanding a language, you know? Yeah, it, very much so. It's like, you know, speaking to a supervisor not too long ago and she was like, 
oh, uh, we need a song for this new Netflix show. Um, it'd be like a song put into an episode, a poignant moment. Oh, great. Okay, this is the funding, but um, it's going to be like a great opportunity. Everyone's going to see it, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, like any other show. Like, and this is, this is a job. You want a song. You want to get it from me. This is what it costs. Yeah. All, all the things I do, people are going to see. So it's almost, you just have to be wary of that. Obviously, there are exceptions. If you're trying to break through on something like the first film I did, that's, that was really important that I did that and I got that first feature film. I wouldn't, like the second film that won at the Toronto Film Festival, that, that came about because I'd done the other one. So for me, the, um, the you know, I, I did some deals here and there where I was like, all right, well, I'm going to have to swallow that a little bit because he's taking a risk on me because I've never done a feature film. So that's different, but I did, but I knew I was going to get something out of it. You have to make sure that if you are making deals and you are lowering your value in certain areas or accepting extra extra work, um, that you are going to get something out of it for you, not just for the client or for you know. Just make sure that it's a it's a marriage. You know, make sure you're both happy with the decisions and the deal that's been made. Yeah, mm, definitely, yeah. definitely. So, my last question: What music are you listening to? <laughs> Oh, I listen to so much all the time. It's too much music out there. Um, you know what? I, weirdly, at the moment, I'm listening to Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. Weirdly. Not weirdly. They're fantastic, but it's, it's random. It's this film score, The Proposition. It's a small film that probably no one's heard of, but um, I know you'll actually love this score. You should check it out after this chat. Um, it's so raw and beautiful and like raw bass recordings and violin and it's this like dark kind of uh, western it's a score for a film so it's a there's a few songs in there that he sings but it's very storytelling it's very um oh it just like sucks you into this world it's incredible and I actually I was uh, in mammoth skiing and I was I had a day off and went hiking in the mountains and just had the soundtrack on and it was had the score on and it was uh, it was amazing just walking around and listening to it um so I, that I've been listening to at the moment I'm a big fan of Johan Johansson. Like his score for the arrival is amazing. And obviously his solo album, Orphe, that he put out just before he passed away is so beautiful. Oh, I recommend it to anyone just to go and put that album on if you just want some meditative peace and beauty going into your ears. <laughs> um, Sleep by Max Richter. I've been listening to that a lot, which is so beautiful. What an amazing concept he did, that concert with all the birds out. And oh, it was amazing. Um, and then um, there's a female composer called Mika Levy or Levi. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but um, she did the score for Under the Skin, the film with uh, Scarlett Johansson in. It's Jonathan Glazer, the director. Mm -hmm. um, that score is incredible. And her solo stuff is amazing. Like it's this sort of, uh, uh, sort of contemporary composer kind of stuff. Um, and obviously, um, the, the female element is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> she does like electronic classical stuff um but i would highly recommend that people check out the score for under the skin um mika levi she's she's incredible so i suppose like that that's what i've been listening to recently but um i dip into all sorts of stuff i mean i just listened to justin bieber's new album <laughs> just because everyone's like i was like yeah, everyone's like check it out i'm like okay that's like yeah it's good <laughs> i mean justin bieber's a classic isn't he i mean can't can't go wrong with some good justin bieber pop so you know uh i'm gonna say that the cross section is is pretty wide yeah fantastic sarah yeah. thank you so much for taking time out on this thank you down day 
It was yeah. really great to talk to you. So much fun. Yes. Thank you so much to Sarah. As I said, talking about music is my happy place. And what Sarah says about knowing your worth as an artist, knowing how the system works is so important. If you're a creative who doesn't like to think about this stuff, who isn't registered with any music rights bodies or glazes over every time you see a contract, find someone who can help you. And if you're a female musician in this space and maybe you're feeling bulldozed by the industry or you're struggling to value yourself and your work, reach out to people who do. The PRS, the membership body for writers and creators in the UK, did a study and women represent only 17%, that's 17% of their membership. And if you don't know anyone, DM me on Instagram at holdinguptheladder and I will try and connect you with people who do. Okay, rant over. Please be sure to follow Sarah on Instagram. Go to her website and see more of the incredible work she's doing, details of which are in the blurb below. In great news, Holding Up the Ladder is now available across a range of different podcast platforms. So as well as SoundCloud and Acast, we're now on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher and Deezer. So you have many more ways to like, share, comment and subscribe at Holding Up the Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can also donate. Just click the link below. Next week is our season finale and you're in for a treat. I shan't spoil the surprise. You'll just have to tune in next Friday to find out. Until next time.